we, we Westerners here in the Western world, we, we have certain expectations for our stories. If we're going to read something or watch something, for us to enjoy it, we sort of need it to be in chronological order. Um, we need it to have a pretty clear uh, beginning and middle and end. We really love nice, tidy endings. And many other cultures don't share that. In, uh, when I was in college, as part of the English degree I got, I took this class called uh, Survey or Seminar in the Modern Novel. And we had to read a Japanese novel as a part of that class. Fortunately, it was translated into English, or it would have been really difficult. Um, but I always tell people, if you have a chance to read a Japanese novel, don't. You probably won't enjoy it. Um, I, re I don't remember much about it, but I do remember this. I remember getting to the last page of that book and thinking that pages had fallen out or there was some mistake at the publishing house because the storylines weren't tied up. It just quit. It was just over. And our, our professor, who himself uh, lived in Japan for a, a long time and was married to a Japanese uh, woman, he taught us that for, for, for them, for the Japanese looking at us, our need for every story to have a tidy ending, that seems silly to them because life doesn't work that way. Right? The next day is always another day. Um, you know, this need in us, by the way, for nice, tidy endings creates in us, if you think about it, a lot of angst and a lot of dissatisfaction with life because we're always searching for this big thing that's going to have this grand ending and, and uh, this accomplishment that's going to be, right? And we're going to have this nice, happy ending and either we never accomplish that or get that or we do and guess what happens the next morning another morning and we don't know what to do but anyway um, sometimes our need for logic and chronology that's not shared by other cultures can cause us some difficulties when we read the bible because sometimes the, the biblical authors don't have the same need for those things that we do. Good example, uh, the, some of the so-called contradictions in the Bible have to do with problems, giant air quotes, in chronology, the order of events. If you read the Gospels, you'll notice the stories don't happen in the same event, the same order. So you can, you know the story of Jesus clearing the temple, turning tables over and stuff at the temple. If you read Matthew, Jesus climbs the hill on what we call Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, goes straight to the temple and starts cracking the whip and, and dumping over tables. You read Mark, he waits a day, doesn't do it that same day. You read John, it's like it didn't even happen on that trip to Jerusalem. And we can read that and, and there's a temptation to kind of go, well, see, you can't depend on these things, right? This guy says it happens then. This guy says it happened then. So we got to throw all these testimonies out of court. They won't hold up. But literally, 
the need to communicate truth and the need to have things in chronological order just wasn't the same thing to them. We do this, by the way, all the time. If I was going to sit down and ask you to tell me some stories about what kind of kid you were in high school, you could tell me a bunch of stories. But if you told them out of chronological order, if I got up and said, I, you're a liar. You said, what? Well, those didn't happen in that order. You'd look at me like I was bonkers, right? Because we don't always need chronological order to communicate truth. Make sense? Okay. The reason I said that before today's passage is because this is a topical chapter. Second Samuel chapter 5, the topic is about how God established David as king over all of Israel. But we're going to read some things that don't fit in the storyline where we are at. And that's okay. There's going to be some construction projects that don't happen until later in David's reign. Uh, um, he's going to, there's some sons mentioned that he doesn't have at this point in our story. And it's okay. This is a topical look at how God really established David as king over all of Israel on sort of firm grounds. And our author just picks out five stories from David's life that illustrate that truth. Okay? So we're going to read them one at a time and we'll talk about them individually. This is 2 Samuel chapter 5, where we pick up is in chronological order in the story of David. So that'll be nice for you, at least at first. But uh, the first five verses is our first of the five stories, and they read this way. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, his current capital, and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel, or in that way, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. And then they anointed David king over all of Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all of Israel and Judah. Those verses, that's the story uh, that we get of the day uh, David was crowned king over all of Israel. Prior to this, he was only the king over his tribe of Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. But the first thing we read is David had three qualifications to be king according in the eyes of the people. First, he was from had the right genealogical profile. He's from the right family. You're one of us. That was important. Second, he had the right resume. Israel had wanted, if we would go back into 1 Samuel, they wanted a king who would go out and fight our battles for us. It's like they look at David's resume. Man, when you worked for King Saul, you were really good at this army business. You got the right resume. And then third, David has the right reference on his resume. The people admit, Yahweh, the God of Israel, did say to you, David, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. If you can put God down as a reference on your resume, you have a pretty good chance of getting the job you want, I think. That's that's David. Now, it's easy for us to look at those three qualifications and feel like the third one's really the only one that matters. God said David was going to be king, so David was going to be king. Isn't that true? 
That's absolutely true. But it's not the only qualification of David's that matters. And here's why. God did promise that David would be king. How long has it been since God made that promise to David? Seemed like it's been a long time ago in our sermons. It has. How's life gone for David since the old prophet Samuel, who's been dead for some time, anointed David with oil and promised him he would be the next king? Smooth sailing? David's lived happily ever after? No. David's life's been really hard and really painful and really scary. But you know what? When he gets to this point, all of that stuff, and in true Hebrew fashion, we just get a really small glimpse at this day. But they look back over the life of David, and it's all those difficult times, and David's faithful responses to those things that make people go, you know what? We should accept you as king. You are the right guy for this thing. Man, King Saul used to try to kill you all the time, and you were still just the best commander we ever had. Listen, God has amazing promises to keep for those who love him. And we can get in an awful hurry to get to the good parts. But God uses the slow accumulation of day-to-day faithfulness through difficult times to build sort of our qualifications for service, to build our sort of reputation and testimony for him. David, God could have made David king, but if he hadn't been faithful through all he'd been faithful through, people may not have liked it. His job could have been a lot harder. So that's, oh, and also pay attention to what David's job was supposed to be. Did you see his job description according to God? The people came to David and said, hey, God, we know God came to you and said, David, you are going to be a huge deal. People are going to be extremely impressed with you and bow down to you. And after all you've been through, you really deserve that. Is that what they said David's job as king would be? No. God said, David, you're going to shepherd my people, Israel. This and is like an equal sign. That's what it's going to mean for you to rule over Israel. God was clear with David. Your job is going to be to take care of something that's very valuable to me and take care of it on my behalf, Israel. David's not to lord it over the people. How can I get the most people to serve me? How can I... Do you know that's our jobs? This is how we should view our jobs, our positions, our relationships, our possessions, everything. God has given me, fill in the blank, this job, this house, these people, these relationships, these kids, this spouse, and I'm supposed to help take care of what's really important to him in my little corner of the world, just as sure as that's what was David's job. It's our job too. Let's move on. The next story is another very significant story in the history of Israel, but really a significant story in the history of the world. 
Because it's the story of how David moved the capital of, of Israel from Hebron to Jerusalem. Verse 6. Now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of that land. And the Jebusites said to David, You shall not come in here. The blind and the lame could turn you away. Because they were thinking, David can't enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion. That's the city of David. David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul through the water tunnel. And therefore they say, the blind or the lame shall not come into the house. So that's how it came to be that David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the Milo and inward. And David became greater and greater. Why? Because the Lord of hosts was with him. Up to this point in history, Jerusalem had never been controlled by Israelites. Um, Jerusalem sits, sits on, a, on a, they call it a mountain, but it's not like Pike's Peak. Okay? It's a, a, a big hill. Um, it was relatively small because it's on top of a hill, but it was extremely easy to defend for that same reason. And God had promised that Jerusalem would be part of Israel. Clear back in Genesis, you can go back when God was still talking to Abraham and read, God promised Abraham, I will give your descendants the land of the Jebusites, the people who, in David's day, still lived up there. So it's cool that David, when he becomes king, is like, listen, God promised that to us. I want to see his promises fulfilled. That's cool, but there's something, there's something else really wise happening here. Because... There was no place that God said, that God mandated Jerusalem has to be Israel's capital. This is David's decision. And here's why this is cool. If you go to a map and look at the tribal allotments, the land God gave to each of the tribes of Israel, Jerusalem was not inside David's tribe. It wasn't in Judah. It was in the land God uh, allotted to Benjamin. Guess who's from Benjamin? Saul, the guy who was always trying to kill David. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, who just led the civil war against David. And the first thing David wants to do is move his capital in north into their territory. You think maybe that was unpopular back home in Judah? I think the natural, the normal thing after David wins the civil war is to say, you know what? God made me king. This is a Jewish kingdom, tribe of Judah. We're in charge now, and you guys just have to deal with it. Right? We won. We make the rules. But David doesn't want to just win control. He wants to actually govern the whole nation. Remember what his job was, according to God? You're supposed to shepherd, care for my people, Israel, the whole thing. And I'm sure over the protests of some of his advisors and fellow members of the tribe of Judah, he says, no, 
we're taking the capital into the land of those people who didn't support me. I would love it if someday our politics could learn something from this. Because the only thing we want to do is win the next election and tell those evil such and such is where they can. Not David. He wants to actually govern and care for the people who were just trying to kill him. But deciding to move the capital to Jerusalem and actually taking Jerusalem are two different things. Because the Jebusites have lived there for like a thousand years. And nobody's been able to kick them off of that hill yet. That's why when David gathers his army, the Jebusites see it, they send this really arrogant message to David and say, basically, if we could be defeated, it would have happened by now. They say even, the, even a bunch of blind and crippled people could repel whatever attack you send up. And I love how the author doesn't beat around the bush and says, nevertheless, David beat him up and took the place. As soon as they send that message, the blind and the lame could defend your attacks. David immediately starts calling the Jebusites the blind and the lame. Oh, blind and lame, eh? Let's go teach the blind and lame a lesson. Look at what he says. He says to his men, uh, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and blind. Who's the lame and blind there? That's the nickname for the Jebusites. Let's reach those lame and blind who are hated by my soul through the water tunnel. Uh, that's, that's the only explanation we get of how the battle went. Apparently, David or someone under him found some weakness through, through the, the water system or through the sewer system. In my mind's eye, they found a way to get a few guys in, establish something of a beachhead, uh, fight their way through, uh, you know, I would assume the drainage since it's come downhill. You know, there's an extra biblical source here that said uh, David uh, codenamed this operation Operation Ninja Turtles because they went through the sewer system to get there. That's extra biblical though, so maybe don't uh, depend on that one as a source of truth maybe. But that's, and they take Zion. First time this word shows up in the Bible. Anytime you read that word, it's just another name for the city of Jerusalem. And no one even really knows why or what it originally meant. They took Zion. Next thing we read or, um, is after the victory. It's like the people unfurl a banner that says the blind or their, and the lame shall not come into the house. Here's a good example of why you shouldn't pull parts of Scripture out of their context. Because if I said, hey, David had a big sign that said no blind or lame allowed, how would you feel about David? This didn't mean we don't like people with handicaps. This is a shot at the Jebusites. This is, oh, thought the lined and blame could repel us. Well, now the, those, line, those blind and lame are no longer welcome. That's what that is. Then we're told after David, he has, it becomes the city of David. Um, he uh, begins a construction project that lasted for, oh, a thousand years or so. 
We read that David built all around. The, the more literal translations or word-by-word translations say from the millow and inward. Here's what this means. The top of a hill doesn't have, you can only have so big of a town on the top of a hill, right? If David's going to make a capital city up there, he needs to enlarge the footprint. So what David started doing is building what we would call retaining walls, filling those with dirt, and voila, you've just increased the size of the top of the hill. That's what that means. Uh, they will still be doing that in Jesus's day. <laughs> uh, so that, that construction project continued on and off for a long, long time. You thought Omaha had construction a long time. Uh, they won up us there. And David at the uh, verse 10 tells us just became greater and greater because of his ingenuity and his wisdom and his military genius. No because the Lord was with him. The next story, just two verses long, we get a glimpse at how David's position was being established in the international community, in the Mediterranean world, in the Middle East. Let's read it. Then Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David with cedar trees and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a house for David. And David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that the Lord had exalted David's kingdom for the sake of God's people, Israel. Tyre uh, was a Phoenician city-state. Uh, there were several of them. It's kind of the leading one. And they, they, were, they controlled the commerce and the shipping of the Mediterranean world for centuries. When you read Tyre, just like read, put a dollar sign over the top of the, uh, of the word. They were, they're like Jeff Bezos, okay, uh, or Walmart, that they don't make that much stuff, but they control a lot of the commerce of it, okay? And so Hiram, king of Tyre, is like Jeff Bezos showing up and saying, bowing to David and said, please do me the honor of personally building you a mansion. And that's when David realized, verse 12, when that happens, it's like David goes, whoa, this is like really happening here. David realized two things. The Lord is the one who made me king over this nation. But then the Lord has really exalted this kingdom over other nations. King of Tyre didn't build everyone a mansion. This was special. But David understands he's not doing this ultimately because I'm awesome. He is doing this because the Lord is awesome and the Lord made promises to Israel. That's why all this is happening. My life is bigger than me. This thing that's happening is bigger than me. This is more about God and his plans than it is about me. Now, this whole chapter is about how God established David as king, right? So all five of these stories are supposed to support that topic. And the next story we're going to read to an ancient person would read very logically like one more example of, oh yeah, that's another way David was established on firm footing as king. Now let's read it though and see what, what you think about this story. Verse 13, meanwhile, 
David took more concubines and more wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. Now, these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem, the sons Shemua, uh, Shobab, uh, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, uh, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and then this last one was named Eliphet because he had a really long nose like a trunk, I think. I think. I didn't look that up. Okay. That is supposed to be about David being established on firm footing as king. He had lots of wives and lots of sons from those wives. Um, kings from the ancient world, they took, many, they took wives from leading families less for the physical reasons for that and more for the political reasons for that. These were uh, political alliances like treaties if they were international. Here's the way this would work. If a king took a wife from a leading family from his own country, like we're told here, or if he took a wife from the royal family of a neighboring country, upon that agreement, here's what would happen. It's like, if I'm that king, this family that I took a wife from and now I have sons with, like, that very important person's got grandkids in my house. He has a vested interest in supporting me and seeing me do well. That neighboring king that I take a, a daughter from, make her a wife, have children. Same thing. He doesn't want to see me defeated or deposed. Because in regime change, what happens to the friends of a king who gets kicked out? Right? These are political arrangements. But is this how God said the king of Israel was supposed to grow his political power? It is not. And David should have known this. In fact, in the law, 400 years prior to this, God said someday with it, when Israel is ready for a king and they choose a king, God said very plainly, the king must not take many wives for himself. It seems pretty plain. You know what that means? <laughs> it means he must not take many wives for himself. So what's this paragraph doing in this chapter? This paragraph's like the fly in the ointment. This is the exception that proves the rule. If you were an ancient person reading this for the first time, you might, you're nodding your head. Oh man, God's really establishing this guy. You might get to this paragraph and keep nodding your head. Oh man, man, look at all the power. All these sons, all these wives. Wow, his power's really grown. Then you keep reading in the book and suddenly you realize this was not a source of David's power and strength. This becomes David's biggest problem. This becomes the source of a great deal of pain and suffering and weakness in his administration. Here's what I think this is doing here. Anytime there is a difference between what God says ought to be done, if you want to be on firm footing, and what the world says you should probably do if you want to be on firm footing, if there's a difference in between those things, which one you think will ultimately pay off the most in the long run? 
everyone around would have thought this made perfect sense for David. God had said no. In the long run, I'll be darned if God won't be shown to be right and this idea be shown to have a lot of pain. It also shows us, though, that God still loves and uses sinners. God doesn't kick David out because of this. He's going to give David some incredible promises even when he has these multiple wives. And it shows us that Israel still, even though they've got David, they still have a need for a good king, a better king. His name will be Jesus. And I just want to show you one contrast between Jesus and David since we're here. Jesus said of himself one time, I do nothing on my own initiative. I speak these things as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father. That's something David simply couldn't say. Okay, last story. We're back in the chronological order of David's life. And we read this. When the Philistines heard that they had anointed, that Israel had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to seek out David. When David heard of it, he went down to the stronghold, which is not Jerusalem. We don't know where it is, but they went down to get there. Verse 18. Now the Philistines came and spread themselves out in the valley of Rephaim. Then David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. So David came to Baal-perazim and defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like the breakthrough of waters. And that's why I named the place Baal-perazim. They abandoned their idols there, the Philistines did. And David and his men carried them away, which is a, a real reversal of fortune from something that happened to Israel in 1 Samuel. Verse 22, now the Philistines came up once again and spread themselves out in the same place, Valley of Rephaim. When David inquired of the Lord, God told him, you shall not go directly up. Circle around behind them and come at them from in, in front of the balsam trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then you shall act promptly. For the Lord will have gone out before you to strike the army of the Philistines. And David did so just as the Lord had commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer, which is a place, not a really old man. Um, where we left, this is where we left off. When we left the, the chronological story of David, Israel was a defeated nation. The Philistines just defeated King Saul. There's Philistines living in Israelite towns that Israelites had to abandon like refugee, as refugees of war. And uh, the Philistines for seven years have just sat back and watched Israel fight amongst themselves, right? Why should we fight them? They're doing a great job of fighting each other. As soon as they see David be crowned as one king over the whole nation, they're like, well, now we know who the enemy is. Let's go. So David asks God, should I go fight? And God says, yes, and this story is how God protected Israel. Very plainly, this is not about David's military genius, though I think he was one. It's about God establishing David. The first time 
There they are. God says, go get them. Second time, they're in the same place. And it seems like they should do the same thing that worked so well last time. God says, nope, I got a different plan. Go around, get between them and their home, and wait. And this really mysterious verse shows up. It shall be, when you're just laying down there waiting, when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the trees, then go get them. What you will hear, God says, is the sound of my army going in front of you. And so David does that. We're just that David did so. They went, they waited, they heard. Man, it sounds like there's an army marching through those trees and there isn't one. And they get up and they fight and for 20 miles they whip the Philistines. And that's, that's our passage. That's how God established David firmly as king. What do we learn from that? Because we're not kings of Israel. What do we learn from this passage? I've got a few lessons for us to take home. First, all of our places and positions and possessions and relationships and everything else you want to add in this world should be an extension of the reign of the king. If you call Jesus your Lord, just your master, your king, then everything you have in this world, you should see, we should view that as a place where Jesus reigns, rules. I've had this conversation in my office a lot, and I'm not picking on anybody in particularly. If you're thinking I'm talking about you, you're not the only one. Pastor, I, I really want to do, to work for the Lord, to do stuff for the Lord, but I am a, I'm, I'm a farmer. I feed cattle. I bag and ship popcorn. I, I, I'm not mentioning any names on that one. I don't want you to know who that is. Right? So I just, I'm, I'm in my little cubicle. I don't know. Listen, ask yourself this question. Is Jesus the king over my, my cubicle, my farm, my feedlot, my business? If Jesus is king, does he reign where I go to work? Or do I leave him at home? He wants, he wants to go through the day with us. Sometimes what we can do for the Lord is just let what we have to be an extension of his kingdom. We're supposed to subdue the earth. That's what we're doing here. On your little corner of the earth, do you feel like what you have belongs to him? Then you are serving the Lord where you are at. Once we get that far, We can begin to realize our lives and our jobs are bigger than us. Then I don't have this job just to see how big, how much, how important, how whatever I can be. Because this, is, this place isn't about me. It's about the king. This, if, if David could get to the, the pinnacle where David was at, where the Jeff Bezos of the world is coming and asking for the pleasure of building him a house, and he goes, wow, God's really doing something here. Right? This is bigger than me. 
surely we should have that attitude. This is bigger than me. And when we get that far, we can start paying attention because God still marches in the tops of the trees. We get very impatient for God to do something significant or great or whatever through us. God uses the accumulation of faithfulness and then someday we we're struck with some way God is moving that I can be a part of. If we see number if we see our, our lives like number one and number two, this isn't just about me, this is about the reign of the king, and then I'm paying attention for opportunities where he's marching. Because what God wants us to do is just get in line where he's going and he plans to succeed. Not get out in front of him, get yourself in a pickle and then beg him to, for a rescue. It's the way I've usually done it, to be real honest. And finally, this passage reminds us that God's promises are going to be established in spite of our sins. David was not disqualified by his sins and we won't be disqualified by ours either. Let's, let's close our Bibles and pray and then uh, we'll spend some time. Actually, the guys can go ahead and come forward and, and sit up here and we'll transition to the table and we'll see how we can extend this passage to our communion time together. Father God, as we close Second Samuel, um, Lord, help us to apply this in our lives. We want you, the, the flag of Jesus Christ to be planted uh, in the areas of our lives, where we work, our marriages, how we parent our children, our relationships, our possessions. We want you to be king. Help us to see that, uh, feel that, uh, to, to acknowledge that every day because these lives of ours are bigger than us and they are for you. And then God, help us pay attention for where you are marching in the tops of the trees. We know that if we see all we have as yours, then you will use that faithfulness to point us in other directions. Help us be patient while we wait till we hear your march. And God, thank you that your promises are not undone, even by our sin that you hate. We love you, Lord. Bless our time around the table. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to share with you this communion text um, to kind of focus our time around the table. Matthew 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave the cup to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Here's, what's, here's what I want to focus on there. At the end of that, as Jesus shares a cup of Passover wine with his disciples. He says, the bad news is, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to share this with you again until I do. Until that day when I drink it new with you when the kingdom is 
established. One thing we do around this table, usually we focus on what has happened at the cross already. But another thing we are to do at this table is to focus on what will happen one day. God is going to establish Jesus's kingdom on this earth. It is the Father's kingdom. He's going to turn over the kingdom to his son and he's going to reign on this earth. And again, don't take my word for it. Take his word for it. I promise, boys, we're going to sit down and we're going to share this again in my Father's kingdom. He's going to establish his kingdom. The price that was paid for that is what we celebrate. He had to die, give up his body, shed his blood, or else there would be no one in the kingdom with him because our sins had to be paid for. So this morning as the, as the bread comes around, as the cup comes around, we focus on what he did to allow us in the kingdom and then we focus on the hope we have that his kingdom is going to come and we're going to sit down with him then. Father, as we uh, pass the bread this morning, we are so grateful for the price that was paid that admits us into the kingdom. But also we're so hopeful. We're thankful for the hope we have that thy kingdom will come. We long for that day. Commune with us while we think about that around the bread in Jesus' name. Amen. You know that, that promise that, uh, I'm going to put that back up on the screen, that, that great promise I'm going to do this again with you. My kingdom is coming. You're going to be there. We're going to sit down together. Isn't that, a bit, isn't that awesome to think about, to hear? I don't have it. I don't have it on the screen. You know what Jesus' next words to these guys are? You will all fall away on account of me. How does he keep that promise we're going to get together in my kingdom, you and me, boys, just like old times, better than ever. How does he keep that promise when he knows this is also true? You will all fall away because of me. You know how? Because our sins can't cancel his promises. Our eternity is not based on our faithfulness, but his. On our lack of sin, but his. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, he broke it. When he had given thanks, he gave each of them a piece, and he said, take and eat. This is my body. Father, as, as the cups come around that symbolize the blood of your son, we are grateful that we need nothing else but his blood to be found righteous by you. Thank you that his condemnation takes the place of ours by faith. In Jesus' name, that we might draw near to you in Jesus' name. Amen.
It's a, it's a wonderful old song. What we need more than anything else is to be near to God. You know how we can be? One reason. The, the sin that separates us from that God has been taken care of at the cross. And teaching his disciples that when he took the cup after supper, told them this is the cup, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for many. He asks us to do this in remembrance of him. Amen. I love you guys. Uh, we'll see you probably later this week.